Restrictions may apply. Plans and costs for coverage may vary. Call Protect My Car for details. In these hard economic times, you've got to do whatever you can to save money. One of our biggest expenses can be our cars, especially when unexpected repair bills hit. Not anymore. If you do own a car, truck, or SUV made from $19.99 or higher, you could stop paying for car repairs. That's right. You might not have to pay a penny to have it repaired. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if you qualify. You must have an automobile made from $19.99 or higher, and all repairs. Repairs for your engine, transmission, and much more can become a thing of the past. Dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone today and get your car protected before your next repair bill hits. That's right, total protection for your car and no more repair bills. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if your car qualifies. That's star star 1149. Never pay for car repairs again. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now. Dial star star 1149. I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun. He's gonna shoot the president. Holy smokes, I've gotta do something. All right, Lee, time to become an American hero. concept and then yeah. he went in part and then he went in part right that's that, right that's my concept that's right but i didn't see any i can't say because i okay. wasn't i would have said it but he put him out in the back he's always putting about now you said he only rode with him on weekend he rode with him every day really monday through friday really mm-hmm. we didn't know that and he would bring him but he would only he would let him out in the back though that's what i'm gonna tell you that's right. he would let him out and come in the back together What's up, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is your boy, Rob Clark. This is the Lone Gummin Podcast, and this is the 100th episode. Thank you. Thank you. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're too kind. Thank you. (laughs) I guess now I can be syndicated, right? I'm 100 episodes in. Uh, I guess you kind of need a network for that, huh? And I'm not on one. But it's all good. You still love me, right? (laughs) What's up? Welcome to the show. This is the 100th episode of the Lone Gummit Podcast. I never thought I would get this far, but here we are. And I wanted to bring you a big-time guest today, you know, for the 100th episode. But... I kind of got stonewalled. I got the cold shoulder. So guess what? You're stuck with me. And just me. Now the clip you heard at the top of the show is actually from a different show. Uh, The Real Deal. Jim Fetzer's show. 
And you might be saying, Rob, what in the hell are you doing playing Jim Fetzer stuff on your show? Well, you know, even the sun shines on a dog's ass every once in a while. And sometimes, you know, when you're sifting through that big pile of cow dung, you can find a beautiful, pristine piece of corn, you know, nestled in all that crap every once in a while. And, you know, I'll give credit where credit's due. Um... They tracked down and found and interviewed Roy Lewis, a Texas School Book Depository employee who was there actually standing on the front steps November 22nd, 1963, in front of the School Book Depository. He had been an employee with the company for approximately a year and a half by the time of the assassination. He was an order filler like Oswald and Frazier. And... He was actually only 17 at the time. That makes him 69 now. He lied about his age to get a job there. And I'm going to put up a link to the entire interview if you'd like to go listen to it, if you'd like to torture yourself. Um, The one criticism I do have of the interview, well, I have a few, and I'll go ahead and tell you them. Um, If you're going to interview a witness as important as Roy Lewis, you don't do it in a crowded, loud Restaurant, first of all. I mean, I know it's nice. You want to take the guy out to eat? Fine. Take him out to eat when you're done. Okay? But you need a nice, quiet place where you're not disturbed by the waitress bringing food or some asshole crunching potato chips into the microphone. (sighs) My other criticism of the interview is that it's very edited. As in, you know, Roy Lewis is trying to tell us something. And and they just cut it off, you know. It's like they're not uh, they're not letting him finish his thought because it's not something they agree with, okay. And thirdly and lastly, my criticism of this interview is, of course, they try to shove the whole Oswald in the doorway thing down Roy Lewis's throat. Now Roy Lewis has no clue where these people are coming from, okay. You know, so Larry Rivera has got to pull his big old computer out in the middle of the restaurant and sit here and show him some some gifts and some overlays and and some other manufactured evidence to try and prove to Roy Lewis that Deadly Oswald was out on the steps with him. And, of course, he ain't having it. He's telling him, look, I didn't see Lee Oswald out on the steps. You know, I'm sorry, I just didn't. You know, oh, and they try to say, oh, but you weren't looking behind you, were you? You know, you, you, well, no, he said, you know, I was focused on the president. So you wouldn't have known if Lee was, you know, Lee Oswald was standing behind you. Uh, you know, they, you know, they try to, they try to do this type of thing to him, which I think is totally wrong. They're trying to contaminate him and trying to get him to say something that supports their theory. When in actuality, this man was standing out there. This man knew he was standing out there with people like Frazier and Billy Lovelady and several other people that he knew and worked with. He said he didn't see Lee Oswald out there, no matter how many stupid gifts and overlays you have to try to get the man to speak. But you ended up cutting him off. You never did get him to say anything about that. And I'd like to hear the unedited version because, you know, they would just cut him off. But I'll let you hear it. I'll put up the link and uh, you can check it out for yourself if you don't believe me, you know. Um, 
couple things from the Roy Lewis interview, and it's why I wanted to do this show today, because if you listen to this show, or you know me online, you know very well how I feel about Buell Frazier. Now, I did a show 99 episodes ago, 99, about Buell Frazier, and that's been approximately a year and a half ago, and, and there's been some new stuff coming up since then. Now, I get a lot of flack online when I start calling Buell Frazier a liar online. I get it from both sides. I get it from low nutters. I get it from conspiracy theorists. Um, you know, everybody thinks this guy is always so nice and, uh, you know, laid back and mild-mannered. And, you know, why do you have to call him a liar? You know, and this and that. It's so vicious. He doesn't deserve it. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Look, I'm not making stuff up. I'm not pulling stuff out of thin air. I'm going where the evidence tells me to go. And you know what? With Mr. Lewis coming out and saying this, okay, he merely corroborates, you know, the four or five other of Oswald and Frazier's co-workers who said that Frazier brought Oswald to work every day. Not just coming back from Irving I'm talking every day every day now the Warren Commission never investigated why or how Lee Oswald got to work normally or home from work normally and there's a reason they didn't do this okay they talked to everybody under the freaking sun they had the FBI out you know scouring Dallas for, for, for people you know, in things and places, you know, they had, uh, Jack Ruby's mother's teeth in the Warren commission report. Okay. But they did not investigate the simple task of how Oswald normally got to and from work. And here's why I think early on, some kind of a deal was struck with Frazier. Okay. Because, and look, and I'm not saying this because I think Frazier is some sinister evil dude who, you know, was behind framing Oswald, this, that, and the other. That's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm saying, if I was Frazier, I would have done the same thing. I would have tried to distance myself from Oswald as much as possible. You know? Like, I barely know the dude. Like, he never talks. I know, I don't know nothing about the guy. You know, blah, blah, blah. But in actuality, if you're giving a man a ride to work every day and a ride home from work every day, the reality of it is, is you have a much closer, more intimate relationship than you're letting on. Okay? You have to remember, Frazier's 19 years old. He's impressionable. He's a young guy. Now, Oswald's not much older than him. He had just turned 24. But look, Oswald had already seen the world he had experienced things that 99% or more of the you know the United States population would never do <laughs> okay he'd already been to California Japan Taiwan the Philippines he'd already been to Russia he'd lived in Russia he'd been to Mexico a few times he'd been to England all across Europe to Finland 
and, and, and into uh, Russia. I mean, this guy had seen the world. He'd been in the Marine Corps. Okay? He had a Russian wife. He would have had a ton of stuff to talk about. And this is not even speaking to his, you know, what he was doing in New Orleans. Okay? I'm just saying from from a standpoint of this, you know, if you're around a guy and he's about your age and you're starting to become friends and you're giving him a ride, you know, you're talking about stuff. You're not just talking about the weather and boy, isn't that tree pretty Lee? Uh, you know, it's, you're, you're talking about stuff. Frazier would have looked up to this guy because he'd already seen the world and experienced so many cool things, you know, and this would have just stroked, this would have just stroked Lee Oswald's ego. Now, are we supposed to believe that Lee Oswald, all of a sudden when he got to Dallas, stopped having friends? Stopped seeking friends? Because he's had them his whole life up to this point. In every stage of it, in the Marine Corps, in New Orleans, growing up, in Russia, he had friends. He did. He just did. He was not a loner by any stretch of the imagination. Yet all of a sudden we're supposed to believe when he gets to Dallas, you know, he shuts down. And he decides to become an asshole. You know, this psychotic, lone nut asshole. You know, I, I don't buy it. You know, and if, if he was, if Frazier was giving him a ride to and from work, they would have had more in-depth conversations than what we're privy to. They would have had a closer relationship than what Frazier is letting on to have been. Okay, now... <sighs> There's allegations, whether, you know, whether or not Frazier was actually picking him up from his rooming house on Beckley and bringing him to work. People say, oh, he wouldn't do that. It's too far out of his way. No, it's not. It's actually only a mile and a quarter out of his way. Five minutes is all it would have taken, you know, and that's really not a huge deal, you know, for something, you know, a nice guy. You know, Buell is a nice guy. I'm sure he is. You know, and you know, you see this poor sap Oswald, you know, starting to walk home from work. You know, you're like, hey man, you need a ride? Hop in, dude. You know, that's what nice people did back then. That's what they do now. You know, and Lee, do you have any way to get to work? Oh no, I gotta walk, Buell, or take the bus. Um, Buell's like, man, it, it, look, it really is no problem for me to swing by and grab you in the morning, dude. You know, we can, I can do that, no problem. You know, if you need me to. Sure, that'd be great. Okay. Now, look. The Warren Commission investigated a lot of stuff. They never investigated how Lee Oswald got to and from work. And if they did, they would have run into probably the morning route bus driver, the afternoon route bus driver, and all of the people that normally rode the bus to and from work. Okay. They would have had contact who would have stood beside or sat beside the assassin of the president. But you never hear from any of these people because they don't exist because Oswald didn't ride the bus to work and he didn't ride the bus home. Okay, and Oswald normally had never, ever took cabs anywhere because they were too expensive. He would have either rode the bus or he would have walked or he would have caught a ride in with his old buddy Wesley. Okay. Now look, when we get, you know, to the supposed relationship, you know, and, and, and look, I'm I'm telling you, Buell's lying, okay? 
Roy Lewis. Yeah, you heard it there, and I'm going to play it again real quick because it's only 29 seconds long. And listen carefully to what he says one more time. That was my concept. And then yeah. he went in part. And then he went in part, right. That's, that, right. Now, that's my concept. That's right. But I didn't see any of it. I can't say because I okay. wasn't out with it. Okay. But he put him out in the back. He's always put him out. Now, you said he only rode with him on weekend. He rode with him every day. Really? Monday through Friday. Really? Mm-hmm. We didn't know that. And he would bring him. But he would only, he would let him out in the back, though. That's what I'm going to tell you. That's right. He would let him out and come in the back together. There you heard it. There you heard it, right from the man's mouth. <clears throat> now, we've known about Oswald's other co-workers, and I'm talking about Edward Shields. I'm talking about James Jarman, Harold Norman. Um, who else? Charles Givens. Now we have Roy Lewis. And also Billy Lovelady chimed in on this how Oswald got to work thing. In fact, I'm going to I'm going to expl- I'm going to tell you right now. I th- and I believe this is from an FBI interview with Billy Lovelady. He stated Lovelady stated he did not believe Oswald had an automobile and had heard that he rode back and forth to work from Irving with an employee named Wesley, last name unknown, who was also an order filler. Okay? Um that's what we have Lovelady saying on there. And as for Harold Norman, uh, we have the H- HSCA uh, interviews with all these co-workers, okay? And what's interesting about this is you can tell that these HSCA investigators were on a certain path. And a lot of this questioning surrounded Buell Frazier bringing Oswald to work. Because they smelt something funny. They knew something was up. Okay? And you can tell from their questioning, they're trying to get somewhere with this. Okay? But like with most of the HSCA investigations, you know, when it comes to actually going somewhere and interviewing people or bringing them to you to interview them um, or spending any kind of expense, you know, eventually it dries up and they tell you to move on. You know, it happened very often with, with you know, L.J. Dell, Sagate, and Fonzie. Um, you know, these guys, you know, Day, Maxwell, um, all kinds of these HSCA investigators. You know, they, they were, the money just simply was not there to continue what they needed to do and to get where they needed to go. But these guys were on some kind of a path to try to get to uh, Frazier and, and, and really clear up this 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 line of questioning the investigator says Wes Frazier uh, the guy that drove Oswald to work you say was was he friendly with everybody in the place Norman says yeah I think Wesley got along pretty well with everybody in the place the investigator says and of all the people in the place about the only one you think that was friendly with Oswald was Wes Norman says well I would say that uh, I guess because uh, he rode to work with him I don't know how many times he rode to work with him Okay, and that's not the investigator asking him that how many times he rode. That's Norman saying uh, he rode to work with him. You know, like I don't know how many times he rode to work with him. You know, it was too many to count. Um, and another investigator is asking him who was Oswald's best friend in the building that you could think of. 
Norman says, well, I don't know if I'm having one. I, I, I don't. Uh, the investigator says, do you know the man Oswald came to work with? Norman says, yes. And the investigator said, what was his name? And Norman says, Frazier. Now, Junior Jarman, okay, the investigators asked him during the time that he was working there, do you, did you ever see him show any type of animosity towards anybody? Jarman says, no, he was just the average fellow to me. Now, they're talking about Oswald there. Uh, the investigator says, uh, did you associate with any particular person there? Uh, no one really, but uh, I can't think of the dude's name, the one that brings, uh, brought him to work all the time. The investigator says, a fellow that worked with him? Jarman says, yeah. The guy says, well, let me ask you one thing. You said you saw him sometime between 8 and 9, uh, 8 and 8.30 that morning for the first time. Wesley? No, I don't even think he's here now. Did they come to work there together? Junior Jarman says, yes, he always brought Oswald to work. Okay. Now we got another one, Eddie Shields. Now, Eddie Shields is, is, you know, he worked at the other warehouse mainly. I think they called it State Building. But uh, every morning, Eddie Shields would uh, be down out front, you know, I guess around back there by the parking lot smoking cigarettes, you know, before he had to go into work. So he would see a lot of things. He would see Frazier arrive to work and park his car. He would see that. He would see this frequently. Okay, so bear, keep that in mind. Um Shield says, if I'm not mistaken, I think he rode with Frazier every day he worked there, if I can recall. The investigator says, and earlier you said you recall that Oswald had worked there for six weeks. Shield says, he worked there for six weeks from mid-October to to, uh, to the November to the assassination. The investigator says, now let me back up a bit. Are you telling me that this fella said that somebody who worked in the book depository... The building down on Elm and Houston hollered out the window and asked Frazier where was his rider. Shield says, mm-hmm. The investigator says, are you talking about the morning of the assassination? Shield says, I think it was Mr. Davis, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was. Shield says, or Davis says, and how did you come about this information? Shield says, well, I was down on the floor when they hollered it out and said that the answer he gave him. I don't know. I think he said I dropped him off at the building. Now, whoever was hollering asked him, I don't know. This was the morning of the assassination? Shield says, mm-hmm. The investigator says, so somebody hollered out the window at Frazier and says, where's your rider? And to your recollection, Frazier says, I dropped him off at the building? And Shield says, yes. <laughs> And then she says, Wesley Frazier, right, you're correct. The investigator says, all right, he rode to work with him. Shields says, Wesley Frazier, yes. And they would park their car right on Houston Street and get out and walk to the building on Elm Street. Now, that little statement right there corroborates what you heard Roy Lewis say in the clip. That normally, Frazier did not park in that way, way far, lot, far away parking lot. He normally parked up on Houston Street, up by where it bends around, and him and Oswald would get out of the car and walk into the back of the school book depository. They normally didn't park all the way over on the other side of the of the, uh, the building. I think the Warren Commission figured out it was 2,260 feet from where Sh Frazier parked that morning 
to the building on Elm Street. You know, that's that's a freaking hike, man. That's almost a mile. Really? Um, so, yeah, that little nugget there, it matches what Roy Lewis said. Okay? And, uh, and, and he says, okay, the day of the assassination, did you see Oswald come to work with Frazier? Shield says, no, sir, I didn't. They told me that he let him out of the building. He did not come on the parking lot. You say they told you. Shield says, yeah. Who told you? They? Shield says, Jarman, them, and all them fellas that worked down there at that building? Investigator says, all right, this is just, uh, whew. can you tell me a specific person that told you that? So the the investigator knows that he's on a, he's on a, a little bit of a hot lead here on a trail. Shield says, "Yeah, I think it was Charles Givens who hollered out there and asked Frazier where his rider was, and he told him, I dropped him off at the building. Yes, sir, that was it." The investigator says, "You say he drove him to work. You used to see him in the parking lot. Yes, he come by that parking lot. And." uh did you drive him to work every day that you can recall or on certain days? Shield says, every day. Every day. Okay. Now, it would seem reasonable, you know, if it was raining that morning. As Buell said in his interviews, you know, as they drove in from Irving that it was raining. And that, that's what they talked about. They talked about the raindrops on the windshield. Uh, that he would drop Oswald off at the TSBD. I mean... It was a country mile where Frazier parked, you know, especially if his friend has a package. You know, I know if I was bringing somebody to work and it was pouring down rain or even raining at all, that I would be a nice guy and drop him off at the building. I'm not going to make him walk and lug some package 2,000 feet, you know, in the rain. That's just ignorant. I mean, I have to park my car and walk anyway. Um... So that makes no sense. Okay. Now the official story, if you're to believe Frazier, is he says that him and Oswald arrived in the in this in the uh, employee parking lot. And upon arriving he tried to rev his battery up and he was revving the engine up, you know, to try to charge his battery, you know. But if he had just drove in from Irving, uh, that probably wouldn't have been necessary. But as he's doing this Oswald gets out of the car, gets the package, you know, and supposedly cups it under his right hand and, you know, it extends the length all the way up into his armpit or, or directly in front of his shoulder at the at-arms position. Now, this doesn't make sense either because if Oswald is going to all the trouble to conceal whatever's in this bag, if it is a rifle, okay, why in the hell is Oswald carrying it like a goddamn rifle, okay? That makes no sense. I would carry it in one hand, you know, like a like I'm gripping a bundle of sticks. You know, I'm not going to carry it like an at-arms position like I'm in the military, you know, and march 2,260 feet to the building, you know. That makes no sense whatsoever. You know, if you're trying to hide that there's a rifle in this package, you're not going to carry it like one. That's ridiculous. Okay? And if you've never seen the bag as they're bringing it out of the school book depository, I'm going to put the picture up on TLGpodcast.com. Head over there and check it out. 
because this is the bag that they allege that Oswald brought the rifle in to the school book depository with. In this bag, the investigator Montgomery, it starts as he's holding it down by his belt, arm fully extended down by his belt, and this bag is sticking up a foot over top of his cowboy hat, which is sticking up a foot over his head. There is no way in hell Oswald could have cupped cup the bottom of that package and stuck it in his armpit or up by his shoulder. I mean, this thing would have been sticking two feet up past his shoulder. All right. I mean, this is how long this package is they brought out of there. Now, Frazier's always maintained that the package that he saw Lee Oswald have was approximately two feet long. Now, he could, Oswald could do what Frazier said he did with a two-foot package, but there is no way that Oswald, with his little T-Rex arms, could have carried this package, you know, unless he was a gorilla, unless he had, you know, his arms went down to his knees. There's no way he could have carried this package the way Frazier said he did if it was truly that bag that they pulled out of the Texas School Book Depository. Now, a couple things about Frazier that uh, just are weird. Um, And here's the thing, people. Frazier's never had to answer hard questions from researchers. You know, in fact, he's never done an interview with a researcher that I know of. Sure, he's talked to journalists and newspaper guys and, and, you know, TV people in the Sixth Floor Museum, you know, but he's always been live softballs and basically asked to recant what his version of events was that day. And I don't know why he's been avoiding researchers so long, you know, it's so hard for so long. There's got to be a reason, okay? He's hiding something. And like I said before, I'm not saying it's sinister, but, you know, he's trying to distance himself from Oswald for a reason, okay? Now, if if Oswald did have a rifle in a package that morning and Frazier knew it, because look, let me tell you something. If you're some redneck from Huntsville, Texas... Okay, and you own a rifle and you hunt, your family hunts, then you damn well know what a rifle looks like in a rifle case, whether it's a hard shell case or it's a it's a it's a, you know, like a leather bag or cloth bag type case. You know what a rifle looks like in a bag, especially if you own one, especially if you've been hunting for a while, you know what a rifle looks like in a bag. I'm sorry, you just do. Okay, I could buy it if Frazier had just got off the bus from New York City and hadn't ever seen a rifle in a bag before. Okay, but this dude grew up in Huntsville, Texas, 200 miles south of Dallas, Texas, in the sticks where they hunted. Frazier bought his rifle for deer hunting. Okay, hunting is normally a family activity. You know, with your dad, your granddad, your brothers, your cousins, your uncles. You know, that's what families do. They go hunting together. He would have been around these these rifles since he was very young. And he would have known 
what a rifle looks like in a bag, okay? There's not many things that look like a rifle in a bag other than a rifle in a bag. You know what I'm saying? It, you know, if, like me, I grew up, my grandfather, uncle, hunting, and uh, I knew from a very young age what a rifle in a bag looks like, okay? It's not hard to discern, you know, what what my Uncle Larry's got, you know, hanging up or behind the seat there in the truck. I know that's a rifle. Okay. Now, <coughs> let me see here. Where are we going with this? Yes, the package, the package. So, we have Frazier lying about him possibly knowing Oswald better than what he did because he's lying about bringing him to and taking him home from work every day which we have five or six other witnesses to this is where the evidence is telling us you know why should I believe one man okay who's got a hell of a lot to lose on the line if he's being charged in his, as an accessory to the murder of the president than five, six other guys who have no dog in this fight other than just saying what they saw that day, you know, and what they heard that day. I'm going to believe these guys. Now, back then, the Warren Commission and the FBI, they didn't even, they weren't really even bothered talking to these African-American workers there. You know, if you listen to the Roy Lewis interview, he said the FBI came to his apartment building Somebody told him he didn't live there, and they left. They didn't even bother knocking on doors to try and talk to him. It wasn't that big of a deal for them. You know, they're not going to listen to what these guys were saying. And he says it blatantly. You know, do you think it was some kind of a, you know, intimidation thing, or you guys were just ignored? And he said, he says, I, I you know, wasn't no intimidation. I think they just ignored us. You know? And by the time of the HSCA and you get some of these seasoned investigators who know uh, that something else had to be going on here. And when you start talking to one person and they say something and then you talk, start talking to another person and they say something, the same thing, you know, and another person and they say the same thing. And look, by this time, by the time of the HSCA, none of these guys even work at the depository anymore. You know, they don't hang out anymore. They're not in each other's lives anymore. They have no contact with each other. But they're all still telling the same story about Frazier and Oswald coming to work together every day. I think that's significant. Okay? I do. So why is Frazier lying about it? Look, if Oswald brought a rifle that day to work, and I'm not saying it had to be for a sinister reason, Okay, he could have told Frazier, you know, hey, you remember the other day, you know, when 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 that guy brought them rifles in in uh, and was you know showing them to Mister Truly, and uh, you know I told him I had this old World War II Italian rifle, and uh, you know would they be interested in seeing it? I told him I'd bring it in, and show it to him. It doesn't have to be anything more sinister than that. Now. You might say to yourself, well, Frazier should have put two and two together that, hey, today's the day the president is going by the building. You know what I mean? And here's Oswald's bringing a rifle. 
you know, or it could have been something to the effect of Oswald telling him, yeah, I, yeah, I got my rifle with me. I got to take it to the gunsmith after work and, uh, get the site worked on or something. Um, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, he could have told Frazier he had a rifle and then he had it in a bag. So, so, you know, nobody would, uh, think bad of him or be scared of it or, you know, whatever the reason may be. Maybe he said, you know, he told Frazier he had it in the bag because he had it apart, you know, and he wanted to keep all the pieces together. I don't know. Okay. But, you know, Oswald may have told Frazier that he had a rifle that day. And look, there's a reason I'm saying this, people. Okay. Because I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. Um, when Frazier was talking to the HSCA. They found out that Frazier told them that he was put in a lineup with Oswald. Okay. And this is something that's never been out there before, you know, and that Oswald said to him, uh, you know, he said, he said that Oswald told him that he owned Dallas, you know, and that he said to you, you drove the car. And then they ask him, do you remember anything else about what went on during the lineup? <laughs> okay. I mean, that's insane. You know, because, you know, Frazier's under arrest. Oswald's under arrest. They put them in a lineup together. I can just see them gritting their teeth at each other like, I own Dallas, bitch. And Frazier and, uh, being like, look, man, you're dragging me into this. I didn't have nothing to do with it. And Oswald's saying to him, well, you drove the car. You know, blah, blah, blah. I could just see that little exchange going on. And then we get this little pristine golden nugget. As Frazier's being interviewed by Moriarty, he says this. No, I didn't know that he'd been caught, referring to Oswald. But I will tell you this. I knew that he hid the rifle. I knew that he hid the rifle. Moriarty says, mm-hmm. Frazier said he did. And I said to myself, I said, oh, my God. That was the first thing right there on them steps, I thought. I also knew that I didn't want to get pulled into this. Moriarty says, mm-hmm. Now, I will tell you that two out of four of Frazier's HSCA interview tapes are so badly damaged that they cannot be transcribed or listened to. The other two are barely listenable. But there is some interesting tidbits that can be made out. Now, in in this little interview, you know, Frazier referred to the military presence in Dealey Plaza and in the depository which you haven't heard him speak of before either. Um, Frazier lied at the mock trial when he said that Oswald was the only one missing from Truly's roll call after the assassination. And we know that's not true today. You know, there was many people, including Charles Gibbons, not there. Um, <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. And something I find interesting is that a year and a half ago at the ARC conference in Bethesda, there was a conference goer who was very interested in 
uh, prayer man. Okay. Now, prayer man is visible in a couple films from that day, including one called the Darnell film. And many stills or freeze frames from this Darnell film are available online. And in one of them, um, you can quite clearly see Frazier standing right at the middle of the top of the steps in the entrance to the school book depository. And he is looking in the direction of this so-called individual of prayer man. He was shown this photograph and asked to identify who this prayer man person is. You know, is it Oswald? Is it Lovelady? Is it somebody else? Is it a woman? You know, Frazier's standing right there to the left of him. And Frazier wouldn't even say that that was even him in the photograph. He wouldn't even identify himself in the photograph, let alone prayer man. So you see, when you know when Frazier is hit with some tough things and tough questions, I mean, Frazier even told the Warrant Commission that he didn't see any cops run in the building, and they had to go. Marion Baker had to run right by him. Okay, and this is from the same film, the Darnell film, where you can see Marion Baker running into the building. It goes right by Frazier. You can't see this big dummy in this moon helmet running running right by you into the building I mean where was Frazier's mind or was he so shell shocked he was you know and thinking oh my god Oswald had a rifle I brought him to work oh my god he, you know he's standing on the steps just totally oblivious to what's going on around him you know maybe that's possible and I heard this little nugget from Dave Perry wrote about it in 2008 that Frazier avoids interactions with folks who thinks that he knew, he, he knew something or helped Oswald that day. Like if you insinuate that to, to Frazier, he won't talk to you. He won't have nothing to do with you. You know. And Frazier owned a rifle. He owned a British Enfield 303 rifle. He had to know what a rifle in a bag looks like, people. I don't know how to make that any more plain and clear. Um, and like I was alluding to before, you know, if you know somebody and and you're friends with them and you're, you know, you're, you're talking all the time, you're riding to work together, you live pretty close together, you know, chances are you might hang out together and do something fun together like this. Uh, maybe go to a rifle range and shoot some guns. Commission exhibit... 3077. In an effort to resolve discrepancies in information furnished by Mr. Slack concerning this incident, Mrs. Slack uh, contacted Mr. Slack during the interview. According to Mrs. Slack, Mr. Slack maintained that Oswald was at the rifle range on November 17, 1963, and that he had been brought there by a man named Frazier from Irving, Texas. Mrs. Slack stated that she felt her husband was confused as to the date when he observed the individuals he believed to be Oswald and Frazier at the range. But he was sincere in the statement he had previously made to the agents of the FBI and during his testimony before the President's Commission. Okay? You know, I don't know how much more plain to make this, people. How much evidence do you need? You want more? I got more. Okay. 
back in the summertime, I talked to Miss Francesca Actar about a book called The Assassination Tapes. Now, the book is based on this PSE analysis uh, machine that is more accurate than a polygraph in which Fraser Fraser's previous statements that he did uh, right after the assassination that were seen on the news and they were recorded um, were tested and he was determined that he was lying about what you know what he's saying to the news and and, and you know his version of events of what happened um, fast forward 14 or 15 years to you know the 70s and he has a private he can't find Frazier anywhere it's George O'Toole former CIA guy he has contacts deep contacts and he cannot find Frazier anywhere now at this time Frazier's in the military and he can't find him anywhere every time he catches up you know Frazier's done moved on to, to somewhere else he finally has to hire a private investigator who actually finds Frazier relatively quickly um pretty close to home at Fort Hood in Texas and contacts him over the phone and records the conversation and he lies to Frazier and says that he is a uh, newspaper journalist and that you know he was just interviewing Frazier for a story you know trying to get his his little you know ask him a few questions and his little version of events you know nothing nothing to make Buell you know on edge or feel creeped out or anything you know but just just enough to you know get some answers out of him and on tape and from his recorded statements during this phone interview the private investigator sent his sent a copy of the recording to George O'Toole the author of the book and George O'Toole analyzed this information on the PSE machine and concluded that Frazier was lying now O'Toole's investigator also had a PSE machine and he was also uh, instructed on how to use it and, and certified to use it and he did his own analysis on Fraser's audio and he came to the exact same conclusion that the author did independently independently corroborated that Fraser was lying and the results are right there in the book and you can see them with your own eyes you can see exactly where Fraser was lying you know, so all these people that support him so much and think he's this great guy, and I'm sure he is now, you know, but look, we all have skeletons in the closet. Okay? Just because you talk to somebody at a convention or, or somewhere doesn't mean you know them. You might like them, and you might think they're good people, but you don't really, really know them. Um, you know, and I'm not, like I said before, I can't say this enough. I'm not saying Frazier's some sinister bad guy. Okay? But he was a 19-year-old kid caught up in some big-time bullshit. And chances are he was made to cooperate with the police. Or, you know, and he was threatened that they were going to charge him with the murder of the president as being an accessory. You know? Because like I said, there's no mistaking a rifle in a bag, people. There's no mistaking it. And they had Frazier right where they wanted him. You know, they even gave Frazier a polygraph examination. To which we don't even know the results. Because guess what? 
they're locked away in the National Archives due to national security. I'm not making it up. You can go to the National Archives right now, search Buell Fraser Polygraph, and I'll put a link to it on TLG Podcast. All you have to do is click the link and you can see it for yourself. It says it right there in black and white. It's restricted due to national security or personal privacy. And I don't know what could be so personal about Bill Frazier that they would deem his thing restricted. So it's got to be national security. And I, I can't even begin to speculate on the reasons for that. But it is what it is. I'm not making this stuff up, people. Um, let's see. Let me make sure where we're at here. Okay. Now let's get back. Let me get back a little bit to Fraser's Warren Commission testimony. Um Okay. Now what Fraser told the Warren Commission a lot of things. But what I want to focus on here for a second is Fraser eating lunch. Okay? Um see okay Fraser said well stayed on the first floor there for a few minutes and I hadn't eaten my lunch so I had my lunch down there in the basement and I went down there to get my lunch and I eat it and I walked back up on the first floor there now when you came back in the building you came in the front door right Fraser says yes did you go down to the basement immediately or did you stand around on the first floor Frazier says, no, sir. I stood around for several minutes there, you know. And then, you know, eventually, the ones who hadn't eaten their lunch, some of them had taken their lunch outside. Did other people go down in the basement with you? Frazier says, no, sir, they did not. Ball says, you went down alone, did you? Frazier says, yes, sir. Did you go at any time in the back of the end of the building near the door into the loading dock? No, sir, never did. Perhaps I better ask you to point out on the map where you were. Come over here, please. Okay, you came in back into the building, right? Tell us where you went and what you did. Well, you know, like I said, I came back through there. Uh, here, he's indicating Commission Exhibit 362, a diagram of the first floor. By coming back through here, you mean you came down the hallway and into the entrance into the first floor warehouse? Right, and you came by Mr. Shelley's office. That's his counter here. After you get in, you get off here. This is his office anyway, right out. I come out around here, you know, where several other people walked around here. Anyway, you know, he goes on, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, he says, you know, we left after we stood and talked with some guys there. Some of them had eaten and some of them didn't. Some of them had sandwiches in their hands, and so naturally... I feel like eating. And I walked around the bend and I walked down the steps there. Got your lunch, right? Come back up. No, sir. I didn't come back up. I sat downstairs in the basement eating my lunch. I looked at my watch and didn't have but 10 minutes. So I naturally ate faster than normal. So I was eating a couple sandwiches and I eat an apple or something. And I come right back up and the guys, the people who worked there, standing around on the first floor, some of them eating their lunches, others merely talking. Ball asked, you never went back to work? Frazier says, no, sir, we didn't. I didn't work anymore that day. Okay. So, 
here we have this weird thing, okay? Apparently, Fraser had never eaten his his lunch in the basement before. Now, there was a lunchroom on the second floor, and I heard Roy Lewis talk about it a little bit. He kind of says we weren't allowed up there. Now, I don't know if he's talking about the warehouse workers or just the black folk who weren't allowed up there. I mean, apparently if Oswald was up there, uh, you know, getting a soda and hanging hanging out in the lunchroom, um, maybe, maybe Lewis is just saying that the black guys weren't allowed, you know, up on the uh, second floor because this is, you know, this is still before the Civil Rights Act. This is, you know, still when things were a little, you know, little wonky between blacks and whites back then um you know so there's that and I'm wondering where Frazier normally ate his lunch you know because the you know the black guys they had this they had this domino room down on the first floor where they would normally eat and hang out a little bit Apparently the white guys got to go up to the second floor lunchroom. But this was the first time Frazier ever went down in the basement. I mean, he just saw the president's head get blown off. And all of a sudden his first thought is, man, I'm really hungry. I need to go downstairs and eat my lunch. And this is after he's standing on the steps shell-shocked. He doesn't see Marion Baker run past him into the building. He's just standing there. He's just standing there. And we know he's just standing there because he's caught in the Darnell film. He's caught in the Wegman film. Just standing there like a freaking statue on the front steps, arms crossed, in a daze. You know? So, why... Why would Frazier go downstairs in the basement and eat his lunch well I just told you before you know from the HSCA that little nugget that little nugget I told you and uh, let me find it again so we can go back over it because this is important and I think this is what happened and why it happened um Let me pull it up here. He says, I knew that he hid the rifle. He did. And I said to myself, oh my God, that was the first thing right there on the steps. I also knew that I didn't want to get pulled into this. Okay, so he's telling the HSC investigator, he's standing on the steps and he's thinking these thoughts to himself. I knew he hid or had the rifle. Okay. I knew right there on the steps that I didn't want to get pulled into this. So Frazier's mind is already working out on the steps. Okay. He's thinking in his mind already that this is Oswald. This is the guy he brought to work. This is the guy he brought to work with the rifle. Okay, now he might think be thinking, look, I don't want 
I don't even want to see the guy because he might ask me for a ride somewhere and I don't want to, I don't want to have to tell him no. You know, I, I I just don't I just don't even want to mess with this guy. So you know what? I'm going to the basement where hopefully he won't see me. You know, if he's trying to get out of the building or something, he's not he's gonna look around for a second and not see me and then he's just gonna leave. That's probably what Frazier's thinking. Frazier's thinking at this point that he doesn't want nothing more to do with Lee Oswald. So what better place to hide than in the basement? Okay, you sit down there for 10 or 15 minutes and you eat your lunch. And by the time you come back upstairs, everything's done blown over and he's gone. Because in Fraser's Sixth Floor Museum oral history, he lies again. And he tells us he stood out on all them steps. And that he watched Oswald leave the building walked up Houston Street like he left out the back door walked up Houston Street across the street to Main Street and around the corner and disappeared and he said that's the last time he saw him but we also know that he was in a lineup with him that night so that wasn't the last time that he saw Oswald and we also know that Oswald left out through the front door because he encountered a reporter, it was either Pierce Allman or Robert McNeil, to which he directed to a telephone. We have what they say happened, and we have Oswald in his interrogation saying that, you know, some Secret Service come in, flashed a badge at him or something, asked where the phone was, and he, he told him. But they were probably just a reporter with a press pass or some press badge or something. That story matches. And at this time, of course, Frazier would have been downstairs eating his lunch. He wouldn't have seen Oswald leave the building, either from the front or the back door, according to Frazier's Warren Commission testimony. Okay, so why did he lie again? Okay, I've pointed out umpteen million times that Frazier has lied. Um throughout the years I don't know how much plainer to make it to people I mean what is the evidence telling us okay either Oswald brought a goddamn rifle to work that day in a three foot plus bag and Frazier knew it or Oswald didn't have a package at all because you know what there was no two-foot bag found in the Texas School Book Depository. There were no curtain rods found in the Texas School Book Depository. You can't fit a three-foot-plus rifle in a two-foot bag. Just doesn't happen. Impossible. Impossible. So, Frazier's either lying about the length of the bag... Or he's lying about there being a bag at all. Package at all. Because you know what? And I don't blame him. He wants to distance Oswald. He wants to distance himself from Oswald having a rifle. Period. And I can't say I blame the man. You know? But we're 52 years on now. And I hear Bill Frazier is writing a book finally and hopefully he'll come clean in it 
And if Buell Frazier, if you ever hear this, I hope you do come clean. You know, because I think you've been carrying around a lot on your shoulders for the past 52 years, my friend. And I think you'd feel a hell of a lot better if you were relieved of that guilt. Of that massive burden you've been carrying around for 52 years. Just tell the damn truth, man. If you knew he had a rifle, just tell us. You know, it's not like now they're going to charge you with the murder of anything. You know, if anything happens to you, your family, I mean, it's going to be pretty obvious who's did it. You know, I think we're far enough on now that, that pretty much everybody's safe. Because the people that wanted this to happen are dead, long dead. Um, you know, intelligence agencies are 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 going to still be hiding things that they did back then because they were doing a lot of illegal stuff too but as far as the assassination goes I think you're pretty much safe at this point to go ahead and come clean with the truth you know if Oswald didn't have a package at all tell us you know if he if he if he if he had a you know a bag big enough to have a rifle in it or he told you he had a rifle tell us we just need to get to the truth. Buell Frazier is the most pivotal living witness we have. Okay? Because apparently he was around Oswald more than Marina at this period in time. So, like I said, if you hear this and you want to come clean on this show, feel free. You know, we got a few mutual friends to ask around because people know how to get in touch with me. Or you can send me an email at the Lone Gunman Podcast at gmail.com. You know, I'm all over social media. If you know how to use that, I'm not a I'm not a hard man to find. Cause I got some more I got some questions for you I'd like to answer. I'd like to answer to some questions because I don't think you've been asked the right questions over the years. I'd like to look you in the eyes and I'd like to ask you why you lied about certain things and I want to hear you be a man and I want to hear you tell me why because look I don't blame you you're a scared 19 year old kid being threatened you know and asked to sign a confession you know by the chief of the Dallas police to the murder of the president and you're standing up to this dude you know you're being given a polygraph I don't blame you for lying or giving them what they wanted. Nobody does. We'd all done the same thing. You know. Nope. I don't know that guy very well. Never talked to him. He's very quiet. Da 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 da. I, I feel you. But. In the meantime. Mr. Frazier. You've been lying to us. And I believe the evidence is finally going to force you to tell the truth. With that being said, sir, this some bitch is in the can, beamed up to that satellite and down to your ears. This is your boy. And down goes Frazier. 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 Down goes Frazier.
right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 US only.